Heavenly Father, we want to make Samuel's words our own this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Those are the questions that the risen Jesus asks Mary, one of his followers, in verse 15 of our Bible passage today. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, those questions had a a particular meaning for those two people in that time and place, but they're also meaningful questions for each one of us here today. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? They're meaningful questions because Easter Day is not a day for despairing tears. If you're someone seeking Jesus. That's because Easter Day marks the day when Jesus rose from the dead to be found by all who come to him. Easter Day is a time when despairing tears are wiped away from our eyes because Jesus is alive. John's Gospel tells the story of resurrection morning in two parts. The first part deals with the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene tells Peter and another disciple, most likely John himself, that Jesus' body isn't in his tomb. And we see what Peter and John do in response to Mary's news. The second part of Resurrection Morning is Mary Magdalene's own personal encounter with the risen Jesus. We're going to look at each of those parts in turn. Let's get started then with the first part of Resurrection Morning, verses 1 through 10. We'll give this first part the title, An Unexpected Resurrection. An Unexpected Resurrection. Please look down to verses 1 and 2, and I'll read them again now. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary first senses that something strange has happened when she sees that the stone has been rolled back from the entrance to the tomb. The tomb was a cave, and the stone in front of it was an enormous coin-shaped slab rolled in front of the low rectangular entrance to the cave. The stone was supposed to be covering that entrance. Since the stone has been rolled away, the tomb must have already had visitors. But it's early. It's still dark, according to verse 1, and the previous day was the Sabbath when no one was out and about. So who might those visitors have been? Mary probably made the leap to unwanted interference as soon as she saw the stone had been rolled to one side. She then must have checked inside the tomb itself 
before running to Simon Peter and John with that verdict at the end of verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Well, that immediately sets Peter and John off on the running race described in verses 3 and 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. We know from the Gospels that Peter is a person who launches into things without thinking first. His motto seems to be, leap before you look. So I'm convinced that Peter sets off on this running race at his top sprinting speed, the kind of speed you would use if you were trying to set your personal best in the 100 meters. But if you've ever done middle distance running, 800 meters, 1500 meters, the mile, you'll know that if you start by sprinting at your top speed, you will not be able to sustain that pace. I'm sure that's why John wins this running race. Halfway through, Peter is flailing all over the place. Meanwhile, John, calm, level-headed John, keeps a sustainable pace and overtakes Peter on the outside. When John arrives at the tomb, he stoops to look through the entrance, but he doesn't himself go inside. Peter finally catches up. <gasps> and does he linger outside like John? Of course not. This is Peter we're talking about. He goes right on inside that cave-like tomb. Both Peter and John see that Jesus' body has gone. But we need to notice that Peter and John pay a lot of attention to what is still there. Rather than focusing on the absent body, they focus on the still-present grave clothes. Take a look at verses 5 through 7. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Why all of that emphasis? on the grave clothes. Surely the big point is there's no body in the tomb. That was Mary's big point back in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She didn't say anything about the grave clothes. But when John and Peter get to the tomb, it's the grave clothes that catch their attention. All of the seeing that goes on in verses 5, 6 and 7 is to do with the grave clothes. Verse 5 says of John, he saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 6 says the same of Peter, he saw the linen cloths lying there. In verse 8, we're told that John now believes, and that faith comes after all of those verses about the grave clothes. John's faith doesn't come as soon as he stoops down in verse 5 and sees that the body has gone. The Bible commentator Bruce Milne says, John gives some time to describing the grave clothes. Clearly they were important for him. What we need to do is figure out why they were important. There are two answers. The first is that if unwanted intruders had taken the body, 
they'd have taken the grave clothes with it. Who wants to touch dead flesh? No, thank you. Far better to carry the body in its grave clothes. And even if, for some reason, intruders did want the body, but not the grave clothes, they'd have left a mess behind with grave clothes all over the place. Listen to Bruce Milne again. He says, the scene is orderly and calm, lacking evidence of the violence and disturbance which intervention by the authorities or grave robbers would have involved. That's the first answer explaining why the grave clothes are important. Their presence in the tomb undermines the idea that unwanted intruders might have taken the body away. But there's a second reason why the grave clothes are important, and this second reason might well be the thing that grabs Peter and John's attention. Most likely, the grave clothes, those linen strips, were still in body-molded form, cylindrical, like a tight sleeping bag. If that's right, then Peter and John would be standing there looking at those cylindrical strips of linen, thinking, how in the world could a body get out of those linen strips while leaving them in that shape? There must have been a miracle, a miraculous resurrection. And that's why John believes. There at the end of verse 8, he saw and believed. Here's one last quote from Bruce Milne. What John appears to have seen was the clothes which had been wrapped around Jesus' body, lying as if still enfolding it, as though Jesus' body had simply passed through them in much the same way that he later appeared in a locked room. What they saw was like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged. End quote. Well, John doesn't hide the fact that Jesus' resurrection was unexpected. In verse 9, he openly says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The unexpectedness of Jesus' resurrection is significant. For one thing, that helps to show us that this is real history. Peter, the beloved leader of the early church, doesn't look good in this account. John, the author of this gospel, who, as I said earlier, is almost certainly the other disciple, he also doesn't look good in this account. According to verse 9, they both should have been expecting the resurrection. In verse 9, the scripture means the whole Hebrew Bible, the whole of the Old Testament. John and Peter knew already that Jesus was God's promised King, the Messiah. And they should have understood from the Bible that the Messiah would not stay dead. So they don't come out of this account looking good. And that helps to show this is reliable history. Any historian would agree that if a historical account cherished by a particular community shows key figures in that community looking foolish, well, that points to the reliability of the account. History telling that leaves the awkward parts in is more reliable than history telling that makes everyone involved smell like roses. The unexpectedness 
of Jesus' resurrection is also significant if you're listening today as someone who's not yet following Jesus. Up to now, you haven't considered him to be the Son of God. God come down from God. And perhaps that long-standing worldview of yours, a worldview that doesn't include Jesus as your God, perhaps it seems so familiar and comfortable that you don't much want it to change. You don't want to give up that old, cosy, familiar and comfortable worldview. But verse 8 shows how swiftly, how wonderfully, how unexpectedly faith can rush in. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. That could happen to you. Peter and John had been seeing death as a terrible roadblock. And perhaps that's true of your worldview if you're not yet following Jesus. Death is a terrible roadblock. You know it could come upon you at any time. But if you come to believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead and that his death on the cross paid the price for your sin, death will no longer be a roadblock for you. Instead, you'll have the sure hope of eternal life with Jesus in a world made new. Let that faith rush in if you're someone who's not yet following Jesus. What can your old, familiar worldview truly offer with that horrid roadblock death ahead of you? Let faith in Jesus rush in. Faith in Jesus is based on historical facts that fulfill Scripture. As we heard in our Bible Bible reading from Isaiah earlier in the service, God promised to swallow up death forever, to wipe away tears, and to remove the disgrace of his people. He fulfills all of those promises through the life and death and resurrection of his son Jesus. Please don't be put off if this message is unfamiliar to you. Peter and John weren't expecting the resurrection, and yet faith rushed in. They believed. It's time for us to move on to the second part of Resurrection Morning. The title for this part of the sermon is An Unexpected Ascension. An Unexpected Ascension. It seems that after Mary tells Peter and John that the tomb is empty, she then follows them back to the tomb. They're running ahead of her. She follows them back to the tomb. And when they return home, as we're told they do in verse 10, Mary stays in that garden graveyard. She's weeping, and it's not hard to see why. Think of what she's just been through. This is Sunday, and on Friday the Lord she'd loved and served had been unjustly condemned to death. He had been viciously flogged forced to wear a crown made of thorns, stripped of his clothes, 
nailed by his hands and feet to a cross and left there to die, exposed to the cruel mocking of a watching world. Now she assumes that the dead body of her Lord has suffered a further indignity. Remember her words back in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So we can understand why she's crying. But from heaven's perspective, Mary's tears are needless and groundless. Heaven's perspective is represented by the two angels mentioned in verse 12. They know Jesus has risen. And so they say to Mary in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? In her reply, in the same verse, she essentially repeats what she told the disciples earlier. She says, They have taken my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And before the angels can say, Look behind you! Which I'm sure they were itching to say, she catches sight of a man standing nearby. John tells us it's Jesus, but Mary takes him to be the gardener. And so in verse 15, she carries on talking about Jesus' dead body. Tell me where you have laid him, she says, not realizing that the living, breathing, upright body standing in front of her is the body of the risen Jesus himself. It's only when he says, Mary, that faith rushes in, just as it rushed in with John earlier that morning. Now we are going to major on verse 17 in this part of the sermon, but before we get there, we mustn't overlook three details that reinforce the trustworthiness of this account. The first detail is simply that Mary is a woman. The first witness to see the risen Jesus is a woman. That's a detail that would not have gone down well with the Jewish public at that time. Because in that time and place, sad to say, women were not considered reliable witnesses. So John would never have included this detail, the first Witness to see the risen Jesus as a woman, John would never have included this detail unless he had to include it because that's what happened. Jesus appeared to a woman before he appeared to men. The second detail worth noting is that Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. It's very understandable. She still thinks Jesus is dead. She's crying. But the thing is, this isn't the only time Jesus appears to people who fail to recognize who he is. It happens again later in John's Gospel, as we'll see when we reach chapter 21. And it also happened in that resurrection appearance at uh, Emmaus that I mentioned at the start of the service. Well, that's really not helpful when you're trying to persuade readers that a dead man rose, never to die again. It would be much more convenient from John's point of view, from the point of view of those early disciples engaging with a disbelieving world, it would be much more convenient for them if the risen Jesus was always recognized right away. Oh, it's, it's Jesus. It's the kind of detail you would only include if you can't avoid including it because that's what happened. The third detail is Mary's greeting, Rabboni. 
This is the first time in the history of the universe that anyone has ever greeted a person raised from the dead with an indestructible body. And her greeting is Rabboni. It has the ring of truth because it's so ordinary. John translates it for us at the end of verse 16. He says, which means Prince of Peace, Son of God, King of Kings. No, which means Teacher. Mary's greeting doesn't advance John's theological purposes. It's there because it's what she said. It must have been how she normally referred to Jesus. And so when she saw him again, risen from the grave, that ordinary, affectionate greeting came to her lips. Rabboni. John is simply telling us what happened, even when the details are awkward or ordinary. So as we turn now to this important verse, verse 17, we are going to hear words actually spoken by a real person, Jesus of Nazareth risen from the dead. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I once saw someone wearing a t-shirt with a cartoon drawing of a cactus on the front. It was one of those cactuses that look a bit like a person with arms coming out. And uh, this cartoon cactus had a friendly face, but it was very prickly. Prickles all over. The caption beneath simply said, Hugs? I thought it was quite a cool t-shirt because you couldn't be sure if the person wearing it was genuinely asking for hugs or warning you that they were very prickly. Well, here in verse 17, Jesus is saying to Mary, no hugs, do not cling to me. It sounds a little unfriendly, a little cold. But Jesus is the most loving person who has ever walked this earth. This isn't coldness. This is a vital lesson from the teacher. Jesus is communicating something Mary needs to understand. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Mary is grasping hold of Jesus as if she never wants him to leave again. But it's necessary for him to leave again for her sake and for the sake of all Jesus' people because he has not yet ascended to the Father. That event will happen in 40 days' time. It's described in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, which says Jesus was lifted up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. That's the ascension. But at the time Jesus is speaking to Mary, that event hasn't yet happened. It, as I say, it's still 40 days away. It still needs to happen. Mary will be better off 
if Jesus ascends to the Father than if he stays on earth being hugged by her. His ascension to heaven will be for her good and the good of all his disciples. We know this because verse 17 isn't the first time in John's gospel that Jesus has spoken about his ascension to heaven. Back in chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I'll read that again. This is from John chapter 16. It is to your advantage that I go away, meaning go back to my Father in heaven, the ascension. For if I do not go away, if I stay on earth being being hugged, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. And as that name suggests, Helper, we need his powerful help. Without his help, we wouldn't be able to live the Christian life. Without his help, we wouldn't be able to to proclaim the good news about Jesus throughout the world. Mary mustn't cling to Jesus, physically holding him down to planet Earth, because for her sake, he needs to ascend to heaven so that she and we too can receive the Spirit. Jesus' resurrection was unexpected. His ascension was also unexpected. That's why he had to teach Mary that don't cling to me lesson. The challenge for us, and it's a joyful, invigorating challenge, is to make sure that Jesus' return isn't unexpected in our eyes. Jesus' return follows on from his resurrection and his ascension. His return is inseparably connected to his resurrection and ascension. He himself says in John 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. If I go... I will come again, Jesus says there in John 14. His ascension is inseparably connected to his return. How eagerly are you expecting Jesus' return? Anyone who sincerely celebrates Jesus' resurrection on this Easter day must also sincerely expect his return to earth. Because, as we've seen, his resurrection is inseparably connected to his ascension and his return. Living with Jesus' return in view will affect our thoughts, our desires, our actions, our choices, the whole of the rest of our lives. When he returns, we will be with him in person. I will come again, he says, and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We'll be with him 
in person. We all know the difference now after the year we've just lived through. We know the difference between a remote meeting, a Zoom call, and an in-person meeting. We know the difference now. We will have an in-person meeting with Jesus that goes on forever. The time we have between now and then is time for us, his forgiven and saved people, to prepare for his return. We should seek to live faithful lives. Faithful lives that win his praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here in New York City, we constantly get the impression that we should be living lives of blazing, standout success. But our risen and ascended and returning Lord calls his people to pursue something different. Faithfulness in his service. By the power of his spirit as his forgiven people. Faithfulness in his service by the power of his spirit. That's what it will mean for us to expect Jesus' return. It's a joyful way of life because Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees the ultimate outcome. That's why today is a day for wiping away tears of despair. Why are you weeping? Jesus asks in verse 15. Who is it you're seeking? If you're seeking Jesus, today is a day of joy, not despair, because he has risen from the dead and he lovingly promises, I will come again and will take you to myself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you not just for the resurrection, but for your willingness to send your Son from heaven into our world and his willingness to come. We praise you and thank you for his work here on earth, most especially his work on the cross, paying the punishment price for our sin. We thank you for bringing him back from the grave. We thank you for his ascension so that we now have your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we thank you for the sure prospect of his return. Help us to live in the light of his return. Empower us by your Spirit to live lives faithfully serving him, our risen King. Amen.